Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast that explores love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak. And I'm Sophia Alexandra. And it's International International Safe Abortion Abortion Day. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you heard our series on men talking about their abortions. And if you haven't, go back and listen, because it was a really powerful experience for both of us. Mm -hmm. And I think something that really needs to be heard, because we don't really ever hear men talk about it. But it would be weird for us to talk about abortion and not include, obviously, the words of women. So this is an episode that features women talking about their experiences with abortion, what would happen if we didn't have safe and legal access to abortion in this country, and basically what we can do to make sure that abortion stays safe and legal. Yeah. And for me, this is like a very kind of personal issue because I had an abortion when I was 23 and it is, I'm, it's now over a decade later and it's something that I couldn't talk about, like literally utter out loud for like two years. And even though I could for a long time talk to people one-on-one about it, like I did this podcast for two years and didn't mention it and it's a sex and dating podcast. So like... It would make, you know, it makes sense to That's talk about how powerful it. the shame and stigma is. Yeah, I think. And dismantling that is talking about it and being open about it. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do today. I did a series of interviews actually closer to last anniversary of Roe v. Wade. I had written a piece for Hello Giggles that was like really me coming out about that. And it was something that I really felt because of where we're at politically was important for me to do. So in doing that, I also conducted a series of interviews that I was hoping to use for the podcast, which we're (laughs) bringing to you now. Um, And I spoke with seven women you know, when we talk about this, I think we try to include a lot of voices because like it, it's not just it's a spectrum. one experience. Yeah. yeah. And like, we love to talk to you guys about sugar babies and like gang bangs and, and look at, we love to it. talk jerking off. We love to talk <laughs> uh, threesomes. We, you know, we're all about sex positive, really fun stuff. But occasionally I think it's important that we pay attention to the fact that Um, None of that fun stuff means anything. If we can't have honest discussions about the consequences of sex and what this government in our country is trying to do to women's rights and regulating our bodies. And I think that after you listen to all these women, I hope that you will be um, spurred to go and give some money to Abortion Access Front, some money to Planned Parenthood maybe look up what organizations in your uh, local area you can give money to that's helpful. As you know, Planned Parenthood is getting shut down all over and some women have to travel really far to get an abortion and a lot of them don't have the finances to do that. So if you have extra to spare or you, especially if you have benefited from this right in the past, I think, you know, put your money where your heart is on this. And you can always volunteer to be a clinic escort if you have the time. Oh, yeah. That is super valuable, actually. So without further ado, we're going to bring you the stories of these seven women. And 
you know, if you have access to safe abortion where you're at right now, cherish that and see what you can do to protect it and help defend that right for others. We are increasingly finding ourselves becoming a nation that is giving more rights to a pregnancy and taking rights away from the person who is pregnant. And that is very terrifying to me. That was reproductive justice warrior and comedian Liz Winstead. And that's a very apt 2019 State of the Union for reproductive rights in the U.S. Safe legal abortion access It's not something we can take for granted. In fact, there are several states with six-week or near-total abortion bans already in effect. If you listen to our three-part series, Men Have Abortions Too, you know that I had an abortion a little over a decade ago when I was 23. And I'm eternally grateful I was able to make that choice. And I want it to remain an option for myself and others in the future. So today, in honor of International Safe Abortion Day, We're bringing you conversations I had with some very inspirational women as I was preparing to go public about my own experience earlier this year. One of the things that helped normalize abortion for me and honestly made it possible for me to talk about it on a public platform was the hashtag Shout Your Abortion movement. It was started by Amelia Bono, Lindy West, and Kimberly Morrison in 2015. You probably know it, it went viral. Amelia Bono also went on to co-edit the Shout Your Abortion book that came out last November. And she currently runs an online store where you can get dope pro-choice t-shirts and buttons. I highly recommend it. Go to shoutyourabortion.com for more info. Anyway, here's what Amelia had to say about the movement and how she feels about her own experience. The movement is based around visibility. And I do want to be super public about my story and I want to encourage other people, you know, to to whatever degree they feel comfortable to talk about their own experiences. And I want to help create a culture where talking about our experiences is normal and is an option and is not terrifying. And I truly believe that, like, every time someone does it, that it, like, makes the world a little bit safer for people in the future who might want to be open in that way. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it it is a big deal, you know, like, and, and like for, this is like a thing I I say in the book and thank you for reading the book. And a, a thing that I really try to emphasize is, you know, like for a lot of people, it's just not, it's not worth it for any number of reasons. It might not be safe. It might be just like, really not in their personality to talk about sex and, and reproductive decisions in that way. They, they might be leveraging like their community of faith or really important relationships in their family. And there is no part of me that wants to frame this as some kind of political or moral or feminist imperative. It's like, you're a bad feminist if you don't talk about your abortion. Like this for me was just something that felt really right to do. And the fact that I wasn't was indicative to me that, like, I had internalized a bunch of stigma and was just sort of, like, capitulating to the norm of of silence in a way that just, like, fundamentally clashed with the way I feel, which is that my abortion experience was not only something that I don't feel any remorse or, or shame about, but that, like, 
it was incredibly positive and that I, I, you know, it was empowering to me and that I, I love those people that took care of me and that I want to um, talk about the way that they helped me live my best life and, like, express gratitude. And, and so, you know, it just was the right thing for me personally. Of course, it's not possible for everyone to speak about their personal experiences publicly. But I asked Emilio, why is it so important for those of us who can to be open and out and loud and proud about our abortions? I think that culturally, we really just don't have a, a fully realized understanding of like what abortion actually feels like and how it works in people's real lives. People are are approaching this issue with like no real human touchstones or stories informing their emotional reaction to it. They're simply operating from a place of like a ton of internalized propaganda that has never been challenged by actual real human experiences. And, you know, when we talk about our abortions, we're not just talking about like, I made this choice to end a pregnancy. We're talking about the whole rest of our lives, you know? And uh, like one criticism that people sometimes like have of shout your abortion is that it's like, it's flippant or that I'm, I'm flippant about my own abortion. You know, I've, I've said a number of times that like to me, it felt like a crappy dentist appointment, like in terms of just like it was, it was like a medical thing that was like uncomfortable and, you know, but that it was just sort of it happened and it was over and it was fine. Um, and that I didn't really feel like a huge amount of emotional weight surrounding it. But that said, like, I would never, ever say that, like, abortion is no big deal because I think that it gives you the whole rest of your life. Like, whatever happens after your abortion, it, it might be that you go on to have a career or children or a family that you wouldn't have otherwise. It might mean that you get free of a totally toxic relationship or, you know, that, like, you're a person with a substance abuse problem or a mental illness or, like, you're trapped in poverty and that, like, your ability to decide not to procreate allowed you to get healthy and and design the rest of your life with a sense of autonomy and empowerment. So I think that, like, why is it important to talk about our abortions? Because this this culture is clearly really weird about it, and I think we're really weird about it because we've never actually talked about it with anybody who's had them, and the conversation has just been dominated by politicians and anti-choice terrorists and and people who want to make it seem like something it's just really not. 60% of people who have abortions are parents already, you know, which I think is, is again, like, the anti-choice movement has just been so, they so effectively controlled the discourse, and they have, like, fabricated this idea of abortion regret and, 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 like, psychological damage and trauma and all of that being, like, the pervasive reaction when, in fact, we know that, like, it's 
it's actually the really small minority. And that's not to say that, like, people don't regret their decisions. Of course, some people regret their decisions. And, of course, some people feel a sense of loss or sadness or, you know, any number of, like, complex and or negative emotions surrounding their choice. But, like, we can't legislate things based on the way that a small number of people feel about them. It's like, you know... Right. It doesn't make sense to be like, let's, I had a really shitty marriage. Let's ban marriage. It's like, well, okay, that was your thing. Speaking of marriage, Amelia actually sees our quest for reproductive rights much like the fight for marriage equality a decade or two ago. No one was fighting for marriage equality when everybody was in the closet. But over the last, like, you know, like, as it just became normal to see queer people in neighborhoods and people, you know, even in red states in middle America just sort of started to recognize that, like, oh, yeah, those are just my neighbors and my coworkers and my family members. It's much more difficult to dehumanize the people who you already know and love. And unfortunately... It's really easy for society to dehumanize people who have been othered, you know. And one thing that my friend Lindy has said before that I always think about is, like, it's not fair that women are constantly asked to, like, break open our super personal lives and our trauma and, like, show people the pieces in order to beg for our humanity But unfortunately, it really works, and we don't have a lot of other options right now. I've definitely spoken to a lot of people that are like, I don't want to talk about this. Like, I don't want to talk about my abortion with, like, my aunts and uncles and former bosses and, like, random people on Facebook. But I can't be silent anymore because, like, what's going on right now in this country is that This issue is being legislated in a way that's just fundamentally out of touch with people's real values and with our needs. You know, we're in a country where abortion has been legal for 46 years. 70% of Americans support Roe versus Wade. One in four women has an abortion. And we're on the precipice of seeing, you know, the eradication of abortion rights potentially on a federal level. And even if that doesn't happen, even if they don't overturn Roe, they're going to get abortion access as they have done over the last, really in, in a concerted way, the last like five years. We've seen, you know, hundreds of abortion clinics closed because of trap laws. And, and like, so, so the issue is just being regulated and being dealt with legislatively in a way that's just like not reflective of our reality. The reality is, abortion is incredibly commonplace. It's more common than having braces, getting breast cancer, or struggling with infertility. In the spirit of unpacking why it's so hard to talk about abortion despite how regular it is, I spoke with Liz Winstead about the linguistic dances people do around this hot button issue. There is so much stigma around abortion and about talking around abortion. And even when you look at people who are allies or say they're pro-choice, when they say things like, no one's pro-abortion, people are pro-choice. And it's like, I'm actually pro-abortion. I actually don't 
I don't ascribe a morality around somebody wanting to end a pregnancy because I do not think that there is nobility in pregnancy. I think there's nobility in children. And when we put as much heft and weight and priority on pregnancy as we do on human beings and humanity and living people living outside the womb, I think we find ourselves in trouble. And I think that when you say things like, well, at least we need abortion in the case of case of rape and incest, you're saying that there's good abortions and there's bad abortions. And I think that people don't understand that that language matters. I don't think they understand how that language feels towards a provider of abortion. It makes them feel shameful about the work they do. It makes somebody who's had an abortion feel shameful about why they had it. And it stops people from talking about it. I think we all expect the anti-abortion extremists to shame us and talk about abortion in ways that makes us feel dirty or awful. That's a given to me. But I think that the reality is if you can't say, I'm 100% for abortion, I'm pro-abortion, you have to unpack why it is you can't say that. What is the set of values that brought you to hedging on talking about abortion in a way that's normalizing it. You know, when you check in with yourself, when you talk about abortion, how often do you say, well, you know, Planned Parenthood does a lot of other things except abortion. It's like, yeah, and they do abortion. Why must we caveat that? And so when we look at how we talk about it, if we don't talk about abortion as people who advocate for it, if we dance around the word, it gives ammunition to those on the other side to say, why is it that you don't talk about it? Do you have shame about it? What are you hiding? And I think the Shout Your Abortion book does a beautiful job of talking about if you can talk about your abortion, do, if, it, if you're capable of doing that, if your circumstances allow it, because for the people who can't talk about it, um, because it may harm them, they may be dealing with whatever circumstance around their abortion isn't comfortable for them, by somebody else talking about their own abortion, it makes them feel not alone. It makes them know that regardless of how they choose to talk about and or live with the circumstances around their abortion, there are people who have their backs and can talk about it publicly. Because I think that's really important. Sometimes you don't, you talk about it for the people who can't and you talk about it for yourself. Liz has been very public about her abortion on a variety of platforms, including in her 2012 essay collection, Liz Free or Die. I asked about her own abortion and when and why she first started talking about it publicly. I talked about my abortion for the first time in a one-person show that I did back in like 1992. Uh, And I talked about it because it was part of who... I was, and my circumstances around having my abortion were that I was in a really abusive relationship with somebody who I was in high school, and I didn't know how to get out of that relationship, but I knew that if I were to have a child with that person, that I would never get out of it. And when I went to go talk to somebody about abortion, I ended up at a fake crisis pregnancy center. And uh, that person basically 
never asked me about my circumstances or my life and told me my options were mommy or murder. And realizing that somebody cared so little about me and had so little value about what happened to me, I I wanted to talk about my abortion because I got to be who I am because I got to make that choice. You know, the path is hard enough for anybody trying to break into a world or a career that is paved with people not inviting women down that path. Uh, And so for me to be able to say, you know what, I had an abortion, which allowed me to pursue the goals and dreams that I've always wanted to do. And that's, I, I owe that to the doctors who provided it for me. I owe that to a country that allowed it to be legal. And I feel really lucky. And of course, I get blowback from people saying, well, how selfish. You had an ab- abortion so you could go and have your career. It's like, yeah, yeah. I actually realized that it would be way more selfish for me to want to do what I do with the capacity that I know I have and have a kid. I don't think I'd be a good parent. I feel like there's nothing less selfish than recognizing that all that parenting takes that you don't have that. And then you choose to not bring a child into the world and, and not be able to raise that child with the loving capacity that comes with parenting. I don't have it. I don't have it. Liz is one of my feminist icons. So I had to ask, why is the idea of bodily autonomy so threatening for conservative men? I think because it is the ultimate exercise in self-determination is to decide that when and if you want to have a family. And I think that recognizing the power in your own self-determination and saying, I'm not going to listen to you, I'm going to make my own decision, is the first line at carving out patriarchy. And the only way that patriarchy can exist is if it chips into the full equality of people with uteruses. And that is what being pro-choice means. That's what having access to abortion means. It means granting someone who for thousands of years, a group of people who for thousands of years have not had access to full equality, you know, saying we demand it is terrifying to that system. Oh, what do you know? Guess who makes the laws? That's right, mostly those scared-ass old white guys. Next up, I talk to Robin Marty about how close we are to living in a post-Roe America. But first, a quick break. Hey, privates. We all have our nightly routines, right? Yeah, I like to watch 90 Day Fiance and drink some Kirk Siggy champagne. I like to walk my dog through the crisp night air. (laughs) Just kidding. We both like to just jerk off. True. That's mostly what we're into. And there's a better, newer way to do it. Look, I'll be honest with you. I've been jerking off to erotic stories that you read since I was, I don't know, in middle school. It's super hot. And now there's an amazing app called Dipsy where you can go on. They have three new erotic stories every week. Doesn't matter if you're into dudes, girls, both. Hello. And they have incredible, sexy stories that will really get you horned up before you drill it. So... 
my girl Sophia got me turned on, no pun intended, to Dipsy. And I knew it was going to be good because she only comes to me with the best in jerk-off recommendations. It's true. I don't fuck around. So you guys, you got to check it out. They add three brand new stories every week. So you'll never run out of material, right? The stories are so relatable and so sexy. You guys, there's stories about strangers meeting on the beach in Mexico or like seeing that ex that you can't stop thinking about on the subway or a partner who wants to up the ante in the bedroom. So hot tip for listeners of the show, Dipsy's offering a 30-day free trial right now when you go to dipsystories.com slash private. That's a 30-day free trial when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash private. You guys, that's dipsystories.com slash private. We're all going to be there. We're all going to be getting wet. (laughs) So I spoke with Robin Marty in January when her new book, Handbook for a Post-Roamerica, was published. Remember, this was before Justice Kavanaugh was sworn in. And she explains why we should be in crisis mode already, even though Roe v. Wade is still technically the law of the land. But once we realized that Kennedy was leaving, now all of a sudden it's like, okay, that was the last quote-unquote moderate on the Supreme Court. Now we have to deal with whomever Trump was going to put up. And we knew that his one litmus test was that it had to be somebody who would overturn Roe v. Wade. So all of a sudden, we had reached this point of a complete emergency. We're still talking about if Roe gets overturned. and But in a lot of ways, we don't need Roe to be overturned in order for us to be at a crisis point when it comes to accessing abortion in the country. For a lot of states, we're already there. And for a lot of communities, Communities, especially um, communities of color and rural communities, we've already hit this point where abortion is almost entirely, if not entirely, inaccessible. But now it's been this eye-opening moment for the rest of the country who realizes that their right to an abortion is finally in danger as well. And so everybody's looking for, what can I do right at this moment in order to try and protect it? I see things becoming very real within the next year because I don't think that we actually need states to make abortion illegal for abortion to become inaccessible. And what's going to happen in a lot of these states because of the Supreme Court is I can actually see the Supreme Court deciding not to act on particular bills and on particular restrictions, which will enable states to pass more things because they no longer have to worry about the constitutionality of it. The idea will just be that as long as abortion is quote unquote legal, then any bill can fly. And some ways that I see that this working is if you look down in Mississippi for the last, I think, eight years now, they've only had one abortion clinic there. And in 2012, they passed a bill at the state level that said that a clinic cannot operate unless you have a doctor who has admitting privileges to a local hospital. The Supreme Court ended up blocking that bill, saying that that was an unconstitutional burden to a person's right to access care. A new Supreme Court could come in and say, we no longer see that as unconstitutional and close the clinic. Officially, there would still be abortion legally in Mississippi, but is abortion actually available if you don't have a clinic where you can go and get it? These are the kind of ways that I see the courts and the states working around the idea of making abortion actually illegal in a state and actually overturning Roe. After the recent heartbeat bans this year, we're already living in a post-Roe America in some parts of the country. Robin agrees with Liz Winstead that it's important to look at the rhetoric. 
we need to make sure that it's understood that there's a lot of complex different ways to think about abortion and none of them, no story is more correct, no story is more right. There, There's no more value to the person who had to end a pregnancy that was wanted because there was a anomaly that makes it so that that baby would not have survived once it was born than to somebody who has had four abortions and just was not, did not want to be a mother. Um, we have a tendency as a society to pass judgment on people's stories instead of understanding that every story is valid. If you feel some regret about it, that's valid. If you feel like this was the best decision you ever made, that's valid. You can have all these different complex feelings because we are complex people. And so we just need to make sure that when it comes to breaking down stigma, we're breaking it down in a healthy way where we're telling all of these different stories and we're telling people, you know, it's okay if your story is not perfect, if your reason was not perfect, if you had a bit of regret or sadness, or if you were angry for a bit and then you came back from it, or if even you're still angry now, but you still know that it was the best choice. There's all these different complexities. And I just want to make sure that as we're breaking down stigma, we're making sure that all of these different complexities are heard. Robin is an incredibly loud pro-choice voice in the reproductive rights debate. So I assumed she'd had an abortion of her own, but that's not quite how she found her way to the activism. That actually, ironically, came from having a miscarriage. I was, I had had a child at 29, 30, something around there. And then I was uh, struggling to conceive again. We were trying to have a second child. And we got pregnant and I was super, super excited and went in for a 12-week check um, because they always have you wait until the end of your first trimester to come in. And when I came in, they went to do a heartbeat check and there was no heartbeat. And so I ended up having to go in for an ultrasound the next day. And we found out that actually I'd had a missed miscarriage, which means that I had miscarried. The baby had stopped developing, oh, three or four weeks earlier, but my body didn't recognize it and was still holding on to it as if it were a pregnancy. Because it had been so long, they suggested that I have a DNC in order to have the pregnancy ended immediately because there was such a risk of infection and sepsis. And obviously, my body was not in any way, shape, or form interested in trying to pass this pregnancy on its own. But that was when I found out that my doctor didn't know how to do one. So here I was finding out that this pregnancy that I wanted so very, very badly had was no longer progressing and was just there. And yet I could not do anything to go forward. That I had a doctor who was never trained um, and that instead I had to go at one of the lowest moments of my life and call through all of these different doctors trying to find somebody who was able to do a DNC for me. And so I was sitting there realizing I was in search of a medical procedure that I needed in order to move on with my life. Um, and I had this thing inside me, for lack of a better way of putting it, that I just could not remove on my own. And I couldn't find somebody who could help me. And that was like this, once I got through the DNC, it was this aha moment for me where I thought that I finally understood this is what people feel. And obviously I can't have the feelings that somebody who has had an unplanned pregnancy and unwanted pregnancy and wanted an abortion, but that was probably as close as I was ever going to get because that was this moment where I realized this is still the same medical procedure. 
this is still the same action, this need to remove something and be able to move on with the rest of my life. And But I couldn't do it because here was a medical establishment that was stopping me. And that was just eye-opening for me. It turns out part of the problem that Robin experienced with trying to find someone to do the procedure actually has to do with access to training. A lot of times we're seeing now that Different medical schools won't train doctors. They won't mention that it's something that they could add into their training when they're going through OBG training. Um, Or if you want to do abortion training, you have to leave the actual school and you have to go do it offsite at a clinic. Like all these roadblocks are up that makes it really hard for doctors to get trained in general. But she, this doctor, was at a hospital dealing with a pending miscarriage for a woman that I think she told me was 17 weeks pregnant, um, was septic. There was no possibility that this child could be viable. And the OB that was brought in to deal with the miscarriage, because at this point the woman was hemorrhaging so fast, they had to keep giving her blood transfusions. They were not able to do a D&E, which would have been the easiest, fastest way to be able to end the pregnancy. Um, The doctor just was not trained in that. So instead, they had to induce her labor. It took hours. They went through, I think she said, four or five bags of blood. And the entire time, the pregnant woman was like, just please do not let me die on this table. All because a doctor was not trained on what should be a basic medical procedure. It should be a basic medical procedure. But what happens if it's no longer legal? I asked Robin, how close are we really to coat hanger abortions? It's not the end of safe abortion. What it is is the end of, um, let's let's say, legally safe abortion. Because that's, that's what the problem is. One of the things that we really need to look at as activists as we go into this, this new post-Roe world or more obviously inaccessible abortion world is the fact that we are in so much better shape than we were before Roe happened, especially with having access to medication abortion. Our medical technology is way better in general. We just have a lot more options than we did back then. Like I get extraordinarily frustrated by this idea of coat hanger abortion and, oh my gosh, if we have abortion outside of clinics, it's unsafe, women are going to die, all of these things because they're not, it's not the way it was in the 50s and 60s anymore. For every woman that we have in Tennessee who actually did try to induce her own abortion with a coat hanger, and that's that sticks in our head because it's such a rarity now. For the most part, the what we're going to be seeing is people who buy pills online or who try to use use too much parsley or all of these things. That's what illegal abortion is going to look like in a post-Roe world is going to be people not ending up in hospitals. It's going to be people ending up in jails. And it's going to be people who are ending up in jails because if there is a complication or just if they think there's a complication because there's not enough information out there for people to know exactly what a medication abortion looks like, when people panic, they're going to go to hospitals, and depending on which state they're in, what the color of their skin is, what their economic status is, background checks on them to see if they have any sort of pending warrants or anything like that. We're going to have doctors who are going to question because they want to make sure that it wasn't 
an abortion, we're going to have prosecutors who come in and decide that they want to prosecute to the fullest amount of the law because they want somebody to serve as an example to try and scare other people away from doing it. The most dangerous thing about illegal abortion when we're looking at a post-real world is what happens legally to the person who undergoes it. If we can find a way to get abortion out of clinics, but to get or to get states to stop feeling like they have the legal right to question people who have bad pregnancy outcomes. If we can pass bills that say no pregnant person should ever be put in jail for the what happens in her pregnancy. If we can do all of that, we're actually in a good place because no person, legal or not, should have to travel three hours by car to a clinic have an appointment and then go away for 72 hours and then come back and give $500, $700 in order to have an abortion. That's just not, with all of the technological advances that we have medically, um, that we have technically, this is not the way that abortion should still be going. So things are better than before Roe. And if you're able-bodied, you might be able to just take a pill. But it actually would be the end of legal safe abortion for someone like Danielle Perez. I did surgical because I know someone who did the medically induced abortion and had a pretty hard time with it. I'm disabled. Like, I use a wheelchair. I can't walk. I don't have feet. And so for me, I really wanted the option that was going to be just like physically less challenging and on my body where it's like I can go in be under a doctor's care they do it they make sure it's done right Danielle's family is a little more conservative so it's more of a don't ask don't tell kind of thing she hasn't told them about it directly but they've heard her talk about it on stage she says they know she made the right decision and frankly she doesn't think abortion is that big of a deal it's Healthcare. It's a part of life. Not every abortion is like this tragedy where you were assaulted by a stranger. You know what I mean? And like gang raped, like that happens. And I'm so thankful and fortunate that wasn't my case. But my case is actually way more common. And we demonize abortion. And, you know, all of these Republicans are actively trying to legislate against its legality. And it's a way of keeping women down, keeping women silent. Like the more quiet we are about it, like the more shameful it is. And I'm, when I'm on stage, I, there's nothing that I've ever been afraid to talk about when I do stand up. I'm an open book on stage and I'm thankful that I can relate, you know, these experiences and kind of take that, that secrecy off of it. You know, no regrets. No, I'm so thankful that I have access to healthcare like that. Truly, I'm so thankful. I I couldn't imagine having to carry something like that inside me um, and give birth to it when I didn't want it. You know, like uh, I don't want to. I've been sexually assaulted. You know what I mean. I lived through that, and when you don't want something it, it, to not have control over your body is, is so huge. 
And like the thing I guess that is the wildest to me is that it's like the hill that all of these like frankly like old white straight men want to die on. That's like the thing that they want to be known for, their legacy that they spend all of this time like working towards is like subjugating women. Like I went to the the women's march and I remember just seeing like these older women that were like my mom's age and they were just like we did this already. You know what I mean? Like we, we fought for abortion rights and abortion access and it's all being dialed back and taken away. And that like really blew my mind where these aren't new tactics being used by people. It's like they fought so it could be accessible and normal and legalized and just part of basic medical care. And now we're doing it again. and now we have to do it again. It's really, it's really, it's so upsetting. Like um, at the Shout Your Abortion show, one of the one of the speakers, she told her, she shared her abortion story about getting an abortion pre Roe v Wade, and that was so powerful. It went up after her, and I was like, oh man, I feel kind of like it made me realize just like how fortunate I am. I actually spoke to a woman. Kelly Fitzgerald Junko, who went through the procedure where it was illegal. This is what she had to say about her experience. So I was living in Mexico, and in Cancun, abortion is illegal. So it was kind of at the mercy of, like, this doctor who did them, like, on the down low, and he said I needed to take the pills and then come in for the aspiration procedure, um, like, the next day. So that's what I did. Oh, interesting. I've never heard... Yeah, right. So um, now that I know more about it, like it's um, the aspiration procedures are not necessary, I guess, uh, for what I, I mean, the pills worked and I probably didn't need it, but I guess they wanted to make sure that it, w- it worked and everything was out of there. Mm-hmm. So what was, I mean, knowing that it was illegal in Cancun, mm-hmm. did that make it so much more scary or what, what kind of were you thinking when you were... Yeah. So when I was making the decision, I knew that I had to do it. I actually had um, the advantage of having a few um, female friends who had already used this doctor for their own abortions. So I knew that they had done it and that they were okay and that it worked and they were fine and healthy afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, Had I not known other women who also went through it there, I don't know. If I would have been as willing to jump at that chance and with this doctor, but um, I probably would have because I felt like it was the only option at the time. But, but yeah, I mean, it was scary for like a bunch of reasons. Like one, I'm in a foreign country and living like away from like the healthcare system that I've known my entire life, mm-hmm. and I didn't tell my friends or family. Um, and then two, like, like I. Don't, uh, at the time, I didn't speak very much Spanish. I actually speak much more now, but so it was hard for me to understand everything he was saying. Um, and I was like relying on the on my then boyfriend to like translate everything for me. And I still like wasn't really sure like what was going to happen to me or like what the like side effects were or like all the things that my body ended up feeling were normal. So I definitely was left with a lot of questions. So that was kind of scary. Yeah. Um, and, like, the the office that he, like, worked out of didn't look very nice. It was kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. So that was scary as well. 
Kelly shared her story on a podcast and then in a ravishly essay, which got picked up by anti-choice sites. And then she was mercilessly trolled. So I wanted to know how that colored her experience and if she had any regrets about going public. I mean, I'm definitely glad I had my abortion. I'm glad I shared about it. You know what? It's like, this. that's exactly why people need to be sharing and why I, I willingly took on that burden um, of sharing my abortion story because of literally what happened to me. <laughs> like, these anti-choice, anti-women, anti-abortion organizations and people think they can just turn our stories into something that they're not, make it, make us into monsters uh, and lie about us to fit their narrative. And that's exactly what happened to me. That's exactly why people don't share their stories or feel like they can't and why I definitely know it was the right decision for me. And I, I don't, I feel I'm okay with taking that burden on for, for women, for um, for our rights as people to be able to share our stories and for any woman out there who feels alone and feels like she can't share, which there are so many and I've received so many messages saying those things. Um, there are so many women who will never share or haven't been able to tell anyone and they've told me because I shared mine and, and so that makes it worth it for me. You know, they can say whatever they want about me. It's like, yeah, it hurts like seeing it because it's lies and it's not okay and it's not fair and it's wrong but if I can help someone else make them feel less alone and and make them know that you know there's someone else out there that felt like they felt and that you know they're not the only ones then it's, it was worth it for sure I wouldn't take it back But no matter how legal and safe your abortion and how familiar you are with a procedure, sometimes the experience can surprise you. Here's Molly Gaby. I was heavily involved in reproductive rights on kind of all angles. It was my activism. It was my passion. It was kind of my personal life as well. I, well um, I'm a doula for Planned Parenthood, so I'd been in the procedure room for years um, seeing these procedures. I knew it backwards and forwards, uh, exactly what the steps were. Um, it was completely demystified to me what the procedure was. Um, but I never, um, I never really considered the concrete nature of what it would be like if I ever needed one. Um, and then I did, you know, uh, it was two years ago. So I kind of knew exactly what was going to happen procedure wise, but had no idea what the emotional journey was going to be. But it wasn't the abortion she was struggling with exactly. My partner actually and I were involved in a toxic, abusive relationship. So this is another one of the reasons why um, I'm so overjoyed and relieved to have had access to one because this is, um, you know, abortion is the thing that gives your your autonomy back. And it was kind of in the course of this um, really toxic bad relationship. This was sort of a linchpin of me realizing that, oh, this is, this is an opportunity for me to get out. You know, this is a, this is a new beginning. This is something offered to me that I need to take, uh, to take my life back in my own hands. So, you know, that, that was a really complicated issue. The, the person did come with me to the procedure. Um, I was sort of just, the abortion was the simple decision. The, the relationship was the complicated thing that, um, 
that was that I was struggling with way more <laughs> than the decision to get an abortion. But Molly chose to celebrate. A couple months after the procedure, she posted on social media, and everyone knows I had an abortion shirt from Amelia's online store. And she just kept celebrating. Five months in, she posted a picture of her with a little cupcake. I asked about the reaction from her friends and followers. It was completely overwhelmingly positive. Um, I think it's a breath of fresh air and a sigh of relief when you see someone else speaking their truth and, and in turn, probably your truth as well. Uh, I had a lot of people reach out to me about their abortions, uh, talking about how they just never felt comfortable using um, positive verbiage around their abortions, like joy. Like for some reason, using the word joy in the same word as, abo- as abortion is just like really get, rubs people the wrong way, even when they have experienced that themselves. Sure. It makes some people feel uncomfortable. But for Molly, the rewards far outweigh the risks of speaking out. On a personal level, sometimes I know that people are like, they're just thinking like, with everything that's going on in America, they think, what can I do? What's the, I I have no control over this. Uh, Everything's useless. You know, that, that feeling of despair. But that's why I love that I have this tool of storytelling, because I think it's so immediate, effective, simple, and revolutionary. Like, I hope that continuing to tell my story, like the Shout Your Abortion movement, that's what it's all about, um, inspires other people to tell theirs. Because the thing that I was really surprised about, too, uh, is that when I told my mom I had an abortion, her response was that she had one, too. And we had never talked about that and I was like mom I work in reproductive rights (laughs) you never you never wanted to mention to me that you had one yes sharing helps other people share it helps bring secrets out of the dark And it helps people who don't think that they know anyone who's had an abortion realize, in fact, they do. Like, they live in this bubble of, like, it's only murderers and whores and sluts who get that done, not realizing that it's, like, their neighbor or it's, you know, their daughter daughter, or, you know, their whatever, their doctor. Like, they're people that they respect had one and they just don't even realize it you know like if it's one in three you know someone who's had one so stop shaming it stop shaming it there's there's nothing to be ashamed of that's jenny zagrino she was one of the most outspoken people i talked to we had an amazing combo and she shouted her abortion loud and proud until the very end and thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it oh you're welcome I i have a question yeah Okay, this is gonna be so weird. <laughs> um, I'm guessing my full name can be on there. It's not just gonna be like Jenny. Um, well, I mean, do you do you wanna? What do you want? I guess I am just really nervous with my dad. <laughs> He'll ban me from my house. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just like Jenny and Alex. Yep, that's her not wanting to use her real name. These conversations were potentially going to be used for a radio story, and she was worried it might get back to her dad. Though she realized the irony. I mean, my dad is looking at NPR. I'm just scared that, like, one of his coworkers is going to 
here. Listen. Isn't this, like, isn't this sad? Like, this should be part of it. I'm like, how I'm at the end of, at the end of the interview, I'm like, oh, by the way, can you not put my name from this? I related to this so hard. I initially didn't want to tell my dad because it would make him sad, too. But now he knows, and to be honest, I don't care if he thinks I made the right decision or not. I'm glad he knows that me, not a monster, had an abortion. So today, on International Safe Abortion Day, you're probably asking yourself, what can I do to help? Well, for one, you can support events like the touring comedy shows Liz Winstead does with her organization Abortion Access Front, which are a lot more than just comedy. After the show, we have a talk back with the providers in that community and the local activists, and they talk with our audience about what they need to help uh, either get rid of terrible legislation, help pass good legislation, and how they can help support the clinic in the community. Because so often, if you're an abortion provider in any place from Wichita to Little Rock to Jackson, Mississippi to Omaha, Nebraska, the physicians oftentimes can't drive home the same way twice in a week. They can't get someone to fix their fence or do their lawn because they provide abortion. They're isolated from their community because they provide abortion. So by doing these shows and letting people know that this clinic that provides care, like you said, one in four people will access abortion in their, in their lifetime. Um, people are stunned to know that they're under siege. Um, but then it's also a reminder that oftentimes people who have used their services have had the privilege of moving on. And in the hostile environment that we live in now, it's not okay to move on. We have to make commitments to these incredible providers to say, I'm here for you. I'm with you. I will be part of a community that defends you, and I will make sure that you are welcome in this community. And that is what needs to happen for these places to a thrive and survive and provide the best care possible. And this might not seem like an obvious pitfall of activism, but don't duplicate the work of others. And so we see all of a sudden, in a lot of ways, a very like a higher level white privileged class of people who say, oh my God, abortion is about to become illegal. Oh my gosh, what if they'd stop letting us have birth control? I need to find a way to organize to make sure that people can get emergency contraception. I need to find a way to start an abortion fund. All of these different scenarios, all of these different volunteer organizations and on the ground organizations in many cases already exist. And in a lot of cases have already been led by women of color. So what happens is when we as activists suddenly say, oh gosh, this is really bad and we need to do something about it. And we start throwing resources into these new groups and throwing resources into our own organizations. We're taking away and stripping resources that could be going to these people who are both already active, have already been doing the work and have much better networks on the ground to the people that we are trying to get and gain access for. So what we need to do is take a step, slow down. And in the book, I try and list as many groups as possible to show people that a lot of this organization already exists. This organizing has already been done and women of color have already been leading it. And our job is to say, okay, we are here now. We're sorry we're late. What can we do to support you? 
Check out Robin Marty's book, Handbook for a Post-Row America. It is a super comprehensive look at the issue, state by state, with loads of resources. It is a great place to start educating yourself. Also, check out ShoutYourAbortion.com for more info on the movement, the book, and of course, the online store. Wow, that was really incredible. I'm so grateful that we had a chance to hear from all these women. And I hope you guys follow them They are doing some incredible work. Abortion Access Front, Liz Winstead. Robin Marty, Amelia Bono, get the Shout Your Abortion book. We'll have links down in the description below, but, you know, follow along. See what you can do. Can you give some time? Can you give some money? Can you just be a little bit more aware of kind of the world that we're navigating right now in regards to reproductive rights and just see how you can be a better advocate? Yeah, and awkward transition to something more fun than abortion what could be more fun than abortion absolutely nothing (laughs) oh i'm so sorry that's not the right answer that's (laughs) war what is it good for i always get those two confused totally totally Um, but you guys pretty exciting exciting announcement we're going to mexico city to get an illegal abortion hey no cool it cokes all right The time for abortion jokes is over. No, it's never over. Guess what? We're going to Mexico City, October 4th to the 7th. You guys, we are so excited. So send us your recs, right? Yeah, if there's any uh, people that are dating, sex, interesting folks that you want us to talk to. If you listen to the podcast and you live in Mexico City and you're like, hey, I actually have some thoughts on this. Hit us up. Yeah, and honestly, if you just want to hang out with us and you live in Mexico City, holler at us. We would love to know who to talk to, what to see, which ceviche to eat first. We're going to be eating all the ceviche. And yeah, follow us on Instagram because we're going to be taking you on the adventure. We are at Private Parts Unknown. I am so excited to get out of this goddamn country. (laughs) (laughs) We have... A bunch of other trips in the pipeline after, but we are dusting off these passports and we are excited to get in that jet plane, baby. So, right? I love that you called it a jet plane. This is the 70s, (laughs) baby. Tell me more, baby. (laughs) Hey, Sophia, what's that bomb ass music? So glad you asked. This music is by our awesome friend, Amy Roche. You should buy her music and find her on Spotify. Amy, R-A-A-S-C-H. This episode was mixed by Mike Castaneda from Plastic Audio. We We love you, Mike. Ooh, dainty and feminine. (laughs) I use gentle glide tampons. (laughs) I can't even use tampons. Um, (laughs) My vagina has sealed itself because I'm such a delicate lady. Hey, if you guys like this episode, you should go on iTunes and give us five stars and a review. And honestly, please send us a screenshot of your review so we can send you a button. These buttons are burning a hole in our pocket. Oh my God, we would love to send you guys a button. Let us buy stamps, okay? Let us buy stamps. <laughs> I've never wanted to buy a stamp so bad. Let in us my support life. the US postal system. And if you didn't like us, we're going to mail you straight to the North Pole. No, no that would be good. Money. That would be good too. Santa, Santa would be up there. there. 
<laughs> just whip you right into shape. I love that two adult women were immediately like, Santa lives there. Surely there's a f- fat man with a beard up there. <laughs> okay, see you guys next week. Bye.